The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and of course, I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hi, John. Our special guest today is Josh Hoover of the 7th Assembly District. Not new to the Capitol, though. You were chief of staff uh, to Kevin Kyla. You've been up, I understand you live in Folsom, been there 20 years or more, mm-hmm. and you've been involved in local politics, and here you are now as a newly elected member of the California legislature. So welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, when we were talking to be here. Uh, before, Tim and I were talking about who we would like to have on the show. We wanted to have you for one reason, because of the Capital Restoration Project and your involvement uh, in that and opposition to it in some cases. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the the Capital Annex Project is um, basically this, uh, this goal. The goal is redoing the back half of the Capitol where most of the legislative and staff and the governor's office is housed. Yeah. Uh, it is an aging building. It's a building that does need renovations. It needs to be fixed in ways that, for example, it's not ADA accessible, which is a huge concern. Mm -hmm. And so there are certainly things that need to be done with it. But uh, the current version of the project that was actually pushed by, um, uh, you know, actually my predecessor, uh, Assemblymember Ken Cooley, uh, is is a very costly way to solve that problem. And it's also uh, really re, it, it completely changes the nature of Capitol Park and the nature of the West Steps in the front of the Capitol yeah. that have kind of have this iconic, you know, place where people come and petition their government and really speak, uh, you know, protest and hold rallies. And, and it changes the Capitol in a major way that I think we could probably do without. Um, while still addressing some of the existing issues. There is a lawsuit afoot, at least one. I think there's one, though, that, that uh, is based on CEQA. Yeah. And over the years, over the past few years, CEQA has become the, the uh, Environmental Quality Protection Act that people have learned to hate, mainly because of big projects. And it's been exempted before on big projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of the chances of this lawsuit prevailing? Well, I think the lawsuit, what the judges said in their recent ruling that was a very positive lawsuit and really kind of put this project on hold, at least in the meantime, yeah. was that, you know, the, the, there was not enough information provided to the state in, in the CEQA review process. They really released the details after all that was supposed to be provided. Okay. And when it came out, the public said, well, this is completely, you know, different than the architecture of the Capitol and a number of other things. And I think this lawsuit has a lot of legs. I think we will see some changes. I think the question is, what are the people in this building willing to do? Um, you know, to, you know, how do, are they willing to revise that project and really fix that problem? Well, and one question I have. So the last lawsuit that went against, uh, the people who wanted to do the major renovation of the Capitol, it went through. And they probably just passed a bill to change the law, change the law and move forward. Right. Could they do that with this new ruling? I, they certainly could try. Uh, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, they did um, when they had a legal challenge before. They they literally threw some language into the budget that basically just said that's no that's moot, right? Yeah. And and um, you know that actually is to me even more concerning. One of the biggest concerns for me with this project has been the lack of transparency and the lack of public input. And that kind of demonstrates, you know, that that is still going on and, and, and kind of, so I really, yes, they could, to answer your question, they could. Um, But I I don't know. I mean, look, I think we're in a different context today than we were a year ago. 
A year ago, we had a huge budget surplus. We had all this extra money. We're now looking at a you know twenty plus billion dollar deficit in the new year. Uh, legislators, thirty percent of the legislature has is new. Uh, we need to cut somewhere. This probably isn't going to be the priority for a lot of legislators. And so I think there is a really fair argument to say, how do we reduce costs on this project and, and scale it down? I think that's fair. What would happen to the building we're in right now? We're interviewing you right now in this, what they call a swing space. Um, this building now has capital staffers, has a governor in it. It's got a lot of people in it. What happens to this building if the restoration project is halted? Well, we would just be here you know, longer term, I think. Um, I know the current goal was to finish that project by 2025, oh. um, which is pretty uh, ambitious. Um, but I think that if, if for, for any reason this gets delayed, uh, we would probably be here for a longer period of time, which I think is fine. I mean, this building was built for us to, you know, conduct our business. And I think it serves that purpose very well. So, uh, I don't have any problem with that. Um, it's just a slightly longer walk. <laughs> so. Just on a personal level, do you did you like working over there more than you like here, or the same? Or it's the a, view here is just amazing. The view me. here is amazing. Yeah, that is true. But um, you know, I, I loved being in the Capitol. I mean, there's really nothing like being in you know the Capitol where yeah. where you know um, it's just the history of it and and where the business is conducted. I mean, it's very special. But uh, there is no doubt that it is aging. Uh, you know, the, everything in there is very very old, and there is serious need to to renovate it for sure. So you know, it's hard for me to give up tradition. You know, I like walking to my voting precinct and mm -hmm. casting a ballot. You know. And I liked walking into the cap. It just felt like uh, sometimes it was dark and spooky. We go in there at night when there's nobody. That, well, you, you don't go in there willy nilly now because of security. But uh, it was just kind of a fun. It looked like it should be a capital. And this building, when I walk in here, I just I think of an insurance office or I think of you know a modern skyscraper. You know. But you know, I have to say, John, if I remember right, when you first started covering the Capitol, people were in the little almost like mobile home like temporary offices while they That's were right. doing the renovation. So, yeah. you know, we could go back to that. You guys yeah. could all just be in mobile homes that were kind of parked <laughs> yeah. on the corner of the <laughs> corner of the lot. That's true. Those bungalows uh, were over on the other side, on east side of Capitol Park, uh, near the goldfish pond. Yeah. But it was interesting there is they were so small that they were, for the reporters, there was sort of a sense of intimacy with the people they were mm -hmm. covering. Reporters by yeah. law or by policy are allowed, <clears throat> excuse me, to be on the floor in the back. Mm -hmm. They can't just wander onto the floor where you guys are sitting. Although they can put a business card, send it to you through the sergeants that they'd like to interview you or something. Sure. But that was kind of cool. It was kind of close. Uh, it made me think uh, of the House of Commons. It's kind of intimate and kind of people are close to each other. Mm -hmm. um, this place is a bit different right here, I think. Uh, certainly, have the same vibe. certainly a different feel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, very different feel. Your um, uh, numbers I saw just this morning, I was looking at them again in the assembly, 80 people in the assembly, 62 Democrats, 18 Republicans. Uh, obviously, there's a supermajority on the other side. And most, uh, well, about 30%, I think, are new, if you look at all the numbers in the assembly overall. So not only are you a newbie, you're really in a minority <laughs> party. How's that? Is that a daunting prospect as you go forward? I don't think it's a daunting prospect. I mean, there certainly will be issues that I would like to see change that I, you know, might not be able to get traction on. But I think the reality is there. I still believe there's a lot that we can find common ground on. And um, as I mentioned before, 30% of the assembly is new. I mean, this is one of the biggest 
you know, new classes that we've had in, in since, you know, we changed term limits really. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I am, I've been getting to know my new colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of great people in this new class of legislators and I'm excited to work with all of them mm -hmm. on what okay. we agree on, what we can find common ground on and uh, see what we can do to make this uh, a better place for the people of California. Well, on the flip side, uh, your old boss, Kevin Kiley, is now going to Congress mm -hmm. where it, they will have a majority. The Republicans will have a majority. And Californian Kevin McCarthy is making a run for speaker. Do you have any sense of how that's going? I know we're reading <laughs> in the Washington press. It sure seems like there are some people who are making noise that they're not particularly happy about that. you have any inside info you can you know, don't, don't tell California Politico or, <laughs> you know, or, or tell matters. Tell, tell us. I wish that I did. You know, I've been so focused on, uh, my role here at the state level. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any inside info on, on what's going on at the congressional level. Although I, I would say I'm sure it's nice for my, you know, my former boss to, uh, be switching from the super minority to the majority. <laughs> I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a nice thing, but it does come with its challenges. Yeah. And this is one of them is, uh, number one, selecting a leader. And that leader is going to whoever it is. Um, you know, I, I, my assumption or my guess, right, right at this point uh, would be that it would be McCarthy. Um, but if, uh, you know, whoever it is, is going to have that challenge of really, um, you know, taking the, you know, the wheel of this very, you know, diverse caucus, very fractured, you know, opinions, uh, uh very large. And so it's, uh, it's going to be a challenge for whoever steps into their shoes. You know, when, uh, when I first came here, Willie Brown was actually sworn in, but he had, he had got the speakership in California as we did in a podcast with, uh, uh the late Bruce Young. Uh, with 32 Republican votes and nine Democratic votes. I mean, I knew he had Republican votes and that's how he got yeah. the speakership, but he didn't have like a couple or three. He had 32, which he promised, <laughs> you know, in a power sharing thing for a year, I think. And then he went on and did his thing. But, uh, just the other day, I saw an analysis of the speakership fight now going on in DC. And there have been people that have been approached on the Democratic side of doing uh, on the floor a motion to vacate the chair, which would basically be a vote right there on the speakership. Um, do you see that happening from the Republicans you know and from what you know of, and of course you know Kylie, but um, is there a chance there that you have Democrats voting for a more moderate Republican speaker to join the vote, or is that something that's just outrageous? I mean, anything's possible, but it, it seems in this day of kind of hyper-partisanship where, you know, it, you know, I, I just... I wonder if that's even possible anymore. And uh, I, but, but I would say that I would like to see us get back to, you know, this a more bipartisan nature in this building. You know, I think I've been here many years uh, as a staffer and How know, did things you have, staffer? Uh, so I was here 11 years uh, before I, I got elected to the, to the assembly. And so, you know, I, I think that, I just think that things have kind of changed, you know, we, and some of that social media, some of that's, you know, I mean, there's many factors, obviously the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, heightened a lot of partisanship, but uh, I would love to see, you know, this new crop of legislators kind of take things back to a more, you know, I mean, we're obviously going to have our disagreements. Don't get me wrong. I mean, sure. there's going to be times when I vehemently disagree with uh, a policy and I will certainly voice that opposition, but uh, get back to a time where we can find some common ground on, on some of the bigger issues, such as homelessness, such as public safety, you know, some of the issues that 
uh, I think people really care about. I know you've got an interest in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much so. Will you be part? I don't know. Education committee. Have you put in a request for that, or have they said, "Hey, you know, Josh, we want you on education." Uh, are there are other issues education related you want to get involved. Yeah, I haven't uh, heard on the committees. I, I would expect that we'll hear in January. I would love to be on the education committee. I certainly uh, would be honored to do that. And um, you know, there are there are a number of things that I would like to work on. I think uh, one of them being you know, expanding options for families within the traditional public school system. And so I actually have a piece of legislation being drafted right now that I'll be introducing that would basically say if, if your child's in an underperforming school, um, you know, what you can do is you can actually enroll your child in a different public school district and they can accept your child. So the, the, the home district where your neighborhood is, where you live, yeah. has veto power on you leaving the school district. So they, they actually have to sign off on any child that decides to go to a public school in a different district. Okay. And so my you bill. You still have open enrollment in that sure. you can go to the, another school in your district, right? In, in, in most cases. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but again, that, that depends on availability and things okay. like that. That generally is more accepted by the district. Uh-huh. But if you actually want to, let's say you live, you know, near a different district and you want to go to a school in a different district, you know, oftentimes the home district will veto that. And so my bill would basically say if your child attends a, an underperforming school and we, we define that, um, that, that you could actually enroll in a different school in a different district without that veto power. So. so you would need the you would need the permission of your home district to make Correct. that kind of move. Right? Some districts I don't know much about the Folsom Cordova district. I do have a friend whose wife teaches there. Um, what I understand there's something of a split there in the district, at least economically, between the Folsom piece of it and the Cordova Absolutely. piece. How, how was that? How do you reconcile that? I think it's actually one of the most challenging school districts in the state to govern because of that dynamic. Um, you have. Uh, very significant socioeconomic, you know, uh, challenges sure. in Rancho Cordova. Um, and so we spent a lot of time focusing our attention on how do we, you know, improve academic outcomes in Rancho Cordova? How do we serve these kids? How do we meet them where they are? And uh, that was, uh, you know, honestly, most of my time on the board that wasn't distracted by by the pandemic, which was a whole nother, you know, two yeah, plus years. You know, I pushed for a full day kindergarten. So we actually uh, developed a full day kindergarten program that launched in Rancho Cordova and will ultimately eventually be district wide um, to help get kids a better baseline, you know, for literacy and reading. Um, and then we also pushed uh, for expanding the educational minutes for second and third, uh, first and second graders as well. And so I spent a lot of my time on how do we, how do we help these kids really get a better you know, baseline so that they can succeed later in their educational career. So education is one uh, area of interest of you. What are some of the others that you're interested in policy-wise participating? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a number of uh, of bills that I've already kind of put forward. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty uh, excited. I, I would like to work on the homelessness issue. I think this is an issue, especially when I was campaigning, uh-huh. uh, but also just anytime I go to a community meeting. I mean, this is the number one issue that we hear about, whether, yeah. you know, if you you know, I, I know my county supervisors very well. They're hearing about this daily, you know, uh, from their constituents. Um, how do we, you know, basically allow our public spaces to, you know, kind of restore our public spaces while at the same time 
you know, addressing the needs of the people that need help, the mental health, uh, the substance abuse. And so um, I'm really looking forward to to working on those issues as well. What do you think about the governor's care for its proposal? I think I honestly think it's a decent start, uh, but I, I am I am skeptical on. The, how big of an impact it's actually going to have. And so I'm actually looking forward to seeing it, you know, implemented uh, because I, I do want to see how it works. But my fear is that it's just not going to be enough to make, you know, a huge scale change. Hmm. And so um, I, I, I am certainly encouraged by it. I, it. It's something from the governor that I, I was glad to see that he's actually putting some, you know, moving in this direction where we're going to really try to help get people into treatment and make it easier to get people into treatment. But, um, and you know, the devil's always in the details. And one thing I've noticed about the governor is his announcements are generally very, very good. Uh, his implementation isn't always quite as good as the announcement. And so uh, I would love, you know, I hope that it works and I hope that, you know, it's successful. But at the end of the day, I think we need to wait and see what happens. I think the biggest controversy in that was, um, and we covered it in depth, one of our reporters followed this from day one, um, was the notion of involuntary treatment for someone who needed it and yet didn't want to participate in a program. It's that notion of mm-hmm. someone who's so in need of the care, can you put that person into a situation where they have to have mm-hmm. that care? There are a number of safeguards, as I understand it, in the plan, but that it came down to that involuntary treatment. Do you have any thought about that or notion about that? Well, certainly. I mean, that's, that's the biggest, you know, that's the biggest challenge with any, any um, policy to address this issue is how do you get people care that don't want care or that refuse care? And I think this is something we're going to have to wrestle with as a legislature, as a state, you know, for, you know, for the next couple of years and figure this out. But I think at the end of the day, we have to be able to do something. We have to be able to, you know, there has to be some sort of, you know, um, way to get people into treatment. Um, or, you know, I mean, so for example, I've introduced a bill and, and this is, this is not a, um, a bill that's going to solve all of our problems, but what it does is it actually prohibits homeless encampments within 500 feet of a school, a daycare center or a park. And, um, you know, again, the goal, not, you know, this, this has to be paired with treatment, right? We have to be able to offer them something. We have to be able to offer them somewhere to go. We have to be able to offer them a treatment program. But the idea being that if they don't accept that treatment, there has to be somewhere to go. And, and the, the law enforcement must be, you know, empowered to, for example, send them to a short jail term or something like that. And so, you know, I think there has to be a way to motivate people into treatment. And the unfortunate part of Proposition 47, which I'm sure you guys have talked about on your podcast um, um, over the years, uh, was we had the drug courts um, that really provided that carrot and stick approach. You know, you could either go to treatment or you could serve, you know, your sentence for whatever crime that you committed. And what has happened now uh, with Prop 47 is that has completely gone away so that that jail time is no longer sitting there. So nobody chooses to go to treatment. And I think we need to bring that carrot and stick approach back. You know, another issue that came up uh, on, the, on specifically on, on this topic is the notion of local uh, discretion versus the state, especially in housing, uh, where zoning, mm-hmm. uh, locals are, are loath to give up zoning authority. And in effect, it, it diminishes the attempt to put in subsidized housing or put in low income housing. You have any thoughts about that? Well, look, <laughs> I am a uh, a younger member of the legislature. I'm someone that 
um, you know, was fortunate enough to be able to buy a house, my wife and I, uh, but it was very difficult to do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do. To me, owning a home is kind of the epitome of the American dream. Uh, and it is becoming harder and harder to attain here in California. So uh, I say that to say that we need more housing. I mean, we have to find ways to increase our housing supply. And, um, you know, obviously we want to work with local governments and we want local governments to be the ones that approve that housing. Um, but you've seen, you know, a lot of bills introduced over the last few years to really have more state kind of pushing certain directions. I've introduced a bill uh, that would try to go the more incentivize approach. So incentivize local governments. Uh, I'm sorry, I have I, I'm about to introduce a bill. I'm drafting a bill. And basically what it would say is it would use. Uh, there's a certain pot of money that we get from uh, housing fees and it would uh, basically redirect a certain amount where cities would get, uh, you know, a chunk of money per house that they approve. And so it would really be kind of almost a, an incentive, you know, incentivizing local governments to make the right decision and approve those housing projects. I would love to see that proposal move forward. But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, we need more housing in our state um, so that people can afford places to live. Well, in that legislation, is that something you crafted out of whole cloth or are you basing that on the experience of, of other, maybe other states or other uh, places where housing is not? It's kind of, of yeah, it's kind of unique to California. I mean, it's, it's a bill that we wrote, you know, just, uh, and we're going to float, you know, and, and talk to our colleagues about and hope to get some traction on. Uh, But I I do think there's a lot of folks on the, the thing about the housing issue is it's not, a partisan one. You know, I think there's folks on both sides of the aisle that agree that we need more housing. Um, you know, maybe we agree on what that housing should look like or disagree on what that housing should look like. But I think we all agree we need more housing. And then there's folks in districts where, you know, certainly would, would like not to see growth um, in their communities and, and might be more resistant to it, but it's not, they have, exactly, well, they have very important mountain lion habitat. Sure. There. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a clearly partisan issue, right? Like some other issues are. So I think, I think there's a lot of opportunities there to, to make things better. Well, another big issue right now, of course, is the price of gasoline way up and now it's going down again. But the issue of the question of whether to penalize, uh, companies for that fluctuation in price, you have any thought about that? Um, Since you'll be probably voting on this, you know, I I think the last thing that we need in in this state is another tax, another penalty. Uh, Time and time again, we see this happen, and it gets passed along to the consumer, and the price goes up even more. And I just think it's it's wrong headed. It's not the right direction to go. Um, And I, I would I hope that we reject that proposal as a legislative body. Um, I really think it's just going to lead to more costs for Californians. You know, one one question I do have is uh, watching this from outside this building, you know, not having any say in this. Uh, the governor has proposed to end the sale of internal combustion engines in 12 years. Yes. Well, thir- you know, 12 and 12 years yes. in a few days. And that seems to me like lightning sp- speed to move from where we are currently totally reliant on the internal combustion engine and, and gasoline-powered cars to not really having new ones available. 12 years seems like lightning speed. So do you have any sense of how we're going to make that mandate, how that's going to happen? I don't, is it going to happen? I don't think this is a super hot take, but I, that's not going to happen. I mean, I just don't think there's a world where that happens, where we meet that deadline. Um, it's, it's, 
you know, to me, it's one of those things where it gives the governor an opportunity today to sound very forward thinking. But in five, 10 years, as we get close to that deadline, we're going to see very quickly, there's no way we're going to meet that deadline and it'll probably get delayed is, is probably is my guess on what will ultimately happen. It's not legislative, um, right? It's an executive order. Sure. Yes. So another right. governor could right. rescind it. Sure. That too. And I just think that's the most likely because the reality is, is we're just not there yet. I, I actually drive an electric car. I have nothing against electric cars. I think they're fantastic. But the reality is, is that they're cost prohibitive for many, many families, you know, currently. Um, they're, um, you know, the, the market, they're a very tiny percentage of the market as it sits today. And our grid is simply not ready. We have so much work to do to make our electric grid ready for the clean energy future. And we're just not there yet. And so all of those factors combined, I just don't see a world where that happens. So what, car, um, what car do you drive? Uh, I drive a Hyundai Ionic 5. Huh? Yeah. And you like it? I, I, I love it. Yeah. Huh. It's great. My wife has a forerunner. So we, you know, we do, we do both. <laughs> you know, like, okay. I, I like having both. <laughs> great. Josh Hoover, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Thank Absolutely. you for joining yeah. us today. Um, and we are now going to, maybe without your participation, but we're going to talk about um, who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And I think by acclamation, it seems to be Kevin DeLeon, city council member of Los Angeles. Congratulations, did. Kevin. You yes. really earned it this time. You really got it this time. So, Tim, what do you think? Yeah, that uh, video footage that's going around is pretty stunning to watch, to see an elected official, uh, you know, shoving someone over and, and, you know, in the middle of this tree, was a tree lighting ceremony, kids are crying, uh, you know, activists are activating and Kevin DeLeon is in the middle of, of a brawl. It was really something. In fact, I encourage you to find that video footage if you have not already seen it, because it really is your government at work. Mm-hmm. DeLeon said he was cornered by this guy, uh, Jason Reed, and a couple others who are with Reed and who have been, he says, basically stalking him. You think there's any justification for this? You know, I, I was not there. Uh, what I have read in the LA Times coverage of this, it sure seems like DeLeon like, made the first move, t- t- took this from a sort of a verbal taunting thing to a physical act of aggression. Uh-huh. Uh, his statement makes it appear that that's not the case. And he, in his statement, he says that he was struck and that one of his staffers was hit and that he was responding to that. That is not the way that was framed by the LA Times. And I suppose the truth will come out. And watching the videotape, because there's a fairly long section, there's a little brief clip that kind of starts at the tussle, but there is a, a longer clip that goes, I didn't see that. Now, that doesn't mean something didn't happen off camera before someone started filming, but it sure seemed to me like uh, Kim DeLeon got very frustrated at basically being yelled at and called a racist and being you know, heckled and finally couldn't take it anymore. Uh, that was my interpretation of what I've seen. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, there was a case here in Sacramento, gosh, it's been probably five years ago or so, where uh, Kevin Johnson, the mayor, was uh, hit with a pie by an oh, yeah. homeless activist, I believe. Uh, and he punched the guy. He punched the guy and he, he, he took him down and held him down on the ground for security. And, you know, he got a lot of flack for that. The, the mayor got a lot of flack for that. I personally thought, 
He's justified. He's a public official. This day and age, you know, he didn't know somebody hit him with pie. You know, for all he knows, he's hitting, you know, that was some sort of a horrible, you know, caustic chemical, whatever. And, you know, when you touch someone, you better expect to have uh, have some response. And, you know, Kevin Johnson was a very physical guy, was an athlete. And I think his mom was there. He was very stressed out. I don't, my take for this Kevin DeLeon thing did not seem like that. It seemed like he was the aggressor. Again, I'm sure the truth will come out and there's probably, you know, security camera footage and all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, it really speaks to how ugly the situation is in LA right now. And uh, I just don't know how much longer he can stick this out. Mm-hmm. There is a recall movement right now already uh, that's been filed, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the numbers that they have to get the signatures for that was surprisingly low, I thought. I don't remember how many it was, but it was it really did not seem like a terrifically high hurdle mm-hmm. for, for motivated signers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen, but what has happened definitely is bad. And I think uh, he gets the uh, the award for who had the worst week in spades in California politics. Yeah, I think um, it was the easy pick this week. Yeah, easy pick. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. As John Howard saying, we will talk to you next time around. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.